Mark Fulmer. Mark Fulmer is a retired bioterrorism preparedness coordinator and senior emergency response planner with 20 years of experience in local and state government. His background also includes disease outbreak investigation in public health epidemiology. This is the author of The Wuhan Incident. Mark Fulmer, welcome back to Shabbat Night Live. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. You know, we've heard a lot of news, rumors, what is it, is it real, isn't it real, what's going on with this gain-of-function research that we have heard that is supposedly going on with Wuhan. A lot of people think, yep, it is gain-of-function. Other people say, no, there's no gain-of-function research. What is the truth? You've seen the inside. How do we interpretate? I interpret uh, this. Yeah, absolutely. I don't provide a little bit of background. What is the purpose of gain-of-function research? Um, gain-of-function takes the genetic properties of any type of viral pathogen, and it seeks to enhance them. What I mean by seeking to enhance them, it seeks to make them uh, more uh, lethal, more deadly, uh, having a higher yield of transmission, the ability, the capability to infect large populations. So what you begin doing now, we, I mentioned in our earlier programs about my focus in my career was upon these category A agents, which are naturally occurring pathogens and can be weaponized. Um, when I initially did my training, what we call category C agents, those that are bioengineered. In those days, it was almost like it seemed like science fiction. Now we have actually the ability, um, genetic scientists can take at the very level, DNA level, they can splice DNA, they can manipulate it in order to what we call to evolve to a certain area where that virus, that viral pathogen, is much more deadly, much more lethal than it was in its original state. Uh, recently, some of those that are familiar with the recent uh, Project Veritas disclosure that came out with the Pfizer executive, and we'll talk about vaccines and where they uh, play into all this with big pharma. But one of the, uh, it was interesting, terminology that was used by the Pfizer executive was, uh, he talked about directed evolution. So that happens to be one of the buzzwords. Direct evolution sounds like maybe it doesn't sound as negative as the press that's, uh, uh, that's been reviewed for gain of function. But when we look at the lab in China, uh, and all of this, their aspirations. Um, you know, who was this lab, the Chinese lab uh, here? Uh, mentioned it was a level four lab, which is the highest level of biosecurity um, that deals with the most deadly pathogens. So this is where people are walking around in moon suits and air pumped into their, all that kind of stuff. Exactly, what we call level four personal protective equipment. And uh, so with that, when you begin dealing with level four, by the way, there are only two level four labs here in the United States. One is in CDC. Uh, I've had my staff, we've gone to do some training because we work with uh, management of BSL level three labs in North Texas. 
So there's the one in the CDC. The other is in Fort Detrick, Maryland. Fort Detrick, Maryland happens to be home of the United States Army. It was for years called the Bioweapons Lab. They actually manufactured biological weapons there. They changed it actually a nicer name. It's more, I think they call it a lab of merging uh, infectious pathogens, viral pathogens. Doesn't sound as scary as bioweapons or biological <laughs> weapons. So when we look at the lab here, um, it was actually started uh, in the early 70s. Well, even before that, in the 50s, I'll go back a little further. Um, it was under the People's Liberation Army, Chinese uh, Academy of Sciences. And years later in the 70s, um, France, the nation of France, uh, went ahead and they moved, matter of fact, uh, through the World Health Organization, through other uh, national uh, agencies, funneled millions of dollars in order to construct a level four biolab with the idea that China, they're, uh, they're going to bring to the forefront uh, research, which is gonna be here for humanitarian purposes, Scott, um, and we're going to fight infectious diseases, all of things that sound good within the context of gain-of-function research, okay? They always play this humanitarian card. And, but when you begin looking at the history of the lab, I mentioned about it starting with the People's Liberation Army, a General Shen Wei, who is actually uh, the leading bioweapons expert in communist China, well, actually was the one that was the providing the management of this lab in Wuhan. Now, the question comes up, okay, if the lab is going to be for humanitarian research to find cures to diseases, et cetera, et cetera, why is a leading general from the People's Liberation Army there. They have an office within the Wuhan lab. We began looking at some of those and connecting the dots. And as I mentioned in the earlier episode, uh, China has had an interest in developing an aggressive biological weapons program. If you look at the PLA uh, doctrine of warfare uh, that they have, they talk about winning wars without firing a single shot, winning battles without firing a single shot. And so this book on what we call unconventional warfare, which is the doctrine of the People's Liberation Army, focuses upon biological weapons mm -hmm. and how that they can actually have an advantage, a great advantage, because we know, hey, for years and years, we worried about nuclear weapons. Yeah, certainly nuclear weapons are still a threat. Uh, back in the earlier days, uh, there was question, even with the Soviets, how are we going to develop a bioweapon and how can we deliver that? Okay, the delivery systems for biological weapons are extremely complex because a biological pathogen, you put it on the payload of a missile and you launch it, you lob it over to your enemy's uh, uh, enemy nation territory, uh, heat, uh, the impact, the velocity, wind, everything else 
that biopathogen is very fragile. So uh, the Soviets were experimenting uh, with a number of years. Uh, we know from a Soviet uh, agent actually who had defected from the weapons lab in Russia was talking about that they were constantly trying to get live organisms into missile payloads and launch them. They were trying to figure out ways that we could uh, launch these things, what we call the delivery capability, but very limited. Well, here's the answer from the People's Liberation Army doctrine. They realize if you have a two-legged carrier you have a human carrier, you infect that individual with a virus, you can put them anywhere on the globe. And a virus is designed basically in this genetic structure. It's like it has its own built-in copy machine. That virus typically finds a host and it replicates and it spreads from one person to the other. So they actually, the Communist Chinese Party and People's Liberation Army began looking at viral pathogens. They actually had the solution for the very best weapon to defeat their enemies. Hmm, interesting. You know, I, I, I hear you talk about the, uh, the progression of this through, through the last few decades, and it's curiously similar to something I had worked on. Uh, I was, used to be a, a marketing writer for an ad agency up in Canada. And I used to write advertisements for genetically modified canola. And that again started right after World War II. They needed a, a different market for the rapeseed uh, plant that was growing there that used to be, they used its oil for uh, putting in the engines of steamships, but they wanted to make it for human consumption. So what did they do? They go to the lab, start meshing around with the genes right around the same time, and out comes canola. Canadian oil, low acid. It's not even a real thing, it's, a, it's an acronym. But it's that same type of research, splicing the genes, making it do something greater than it, it, what the original thing can do. So exactly, same thing. Scott. Gain of function. Yes, the gain of function uh, work that's being done uh, there you, you, take, you t take a virus, as mentioned, and you enhance its unique properties, and you take it and make it something, a weapon. You're actually weaponizing, which are category uh, C agents. And you have Dr. Zangli, who is heading up the research, uh, the research director for the Wuhan lab, uh, Dr. Zangli's background, she happens to be the leading expert in communist China on bat coronaviruses. But only that, but infectious diseases, so bats, uh, the, the, the zoonotic uh, studies, the research. So she's referred to as the bat lady. When you see Dr. <laughs> Xi Zangli, uh, pictures of her that were involved uh, very early on. And so there was this interest that she had, and what led to that was a significant incident had occurred in 2013. In 2013, there was a, uh, there were some copper mines in the Hunan province of uh, China, abandoned copper mines. And in these mines, they, they were shut down. And of course, the mines are in caves, so you're gonna have problems with high levels of bat infestation. Uh, there were horseshoe bats that had uh, basically come into these mines and they made a mess. So the Chinese government, they said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We wanna bring 
this copper mine, abandoned copper mine, back into production again. So they took six miners, they were given the unpleasant task of going into the mine and cleaning up the bat dung and fecal matter that was on the walls, it was on the floor, it was everywhere. Six miners that went in. And uh, so uh, within 24 hours, all six of those miners became seriously ill with acute respiratory symptoms. It was, what they call, it was a mystery. And uh, three of those miners died. The other three were hospitalized. Well, Dr. Shazangli takes, her interest is peaked in this. So she sends researchers for the next year and a half into these abandoned copper mines to get samples to bring back. And out of that research, Scott, they begin discovering the earliest bat coronaviruses. We call them alpha, beta coronaviruses. And she's angry focused upon this was going to be her next grandest research project, wouldn't you know? Bat coronaviruses. Now, here's the thing about it. I had in a previous episode said, well, we have to look at the the natural zoonotic origins theory. Yes, this didn't come out, this, this virus didn't come out of tainted meat sold in the marketplace. But there is some zoonotic basis behind that because there were basically these viral pathogens from bats that Dr. Zangley began researching in her lab. And that's where they began making the connections to agencies here in the United States with gain-of-function research. Mm. So now, we've heard that there is a connection here specifically in North Carolina to uh, UNC Chapel Hill. So how far back does that go with all of this? Yes, but in 20, uh, shortly after 2013 and 2014, um, a Dr. Ralph Barrick at uh, UNC Chapel Hill uh, took a special interest in some of the research that Dr. Zangley was doing with these coronaviruses. So Dr. Zangley actually comes to the United States uh, with her research team, um, and there is this focus that begins upon these particular viruses and what can be done. So we actually take, Scott, 40 research scientists from China, from the China lab, they're working inside the lab, we bring them over to the United States, okay? Universities, even just south of where I lived in uh, Texas, uh, Texas A&M in Galveston, uh, trained these scientists in the genetic, uh, gene, what do you call the gene splicing uh, techniques. So we gave them our technology, our ability to actually take these coronaviruses, but it didn't stop there. Dr. Ralph Barrick of the University of North Carolina, uh, they began this research where they took these viruses, these alpha, beta, corona, early coronaviruses from bats, and they began splicing them into the backbones of mice. 
Okay, why are you doing that? In genetic research, you take a host, you introduce a virus or a viral template. Uh, it's from there you can let that virus, it needs a host, uh, it, it begins to grow, and from there they begin this research. Okay, this is something that's not science fiction, it's not made up. You can actually see Dr. Ralph Barrick's uh, journal that they, they had published and Dr. Xi Zengli's journal that they collaborated together on these coronaviruses, some 200 plus pages. It's amazing, but they focus upon uh, these genetic properties. So what they begin doing, Scott, they begin taking uh, from merging these, splicing them into the backbone of, of mice and begin enhancing them, making them even more uh, their research that they started writing very early on, 2014, 2015, that talked about how the spike proteins can be further enhanced or modified. The spike protein, those of you who've seen the pictures of the, the famous uh, coronavirus, look, it, it, it has all these red, it's a round ball, it has all these spikes where it gets its name, the coronavirus, yes. Mm -hmm. And these spikes, well, the spike protein is what actually latches onto the lung membranes, the tissues in the lung and the, the nasal tracts uh, when it's breathed in. So the genetic properties of the spike protein were even further enhanced to say, hey, they, they have staying power to infect uh, the, the average human immune system. And one of the things that we know that all of this research that was being done, there were other agencies that were involved, Equal Health Alliance, uh, Dr. Peter Daszak uh, with EcoHealth, also the NIH mm. uh, were involved with this research and developing. Uh, they, what they, they were building, it was sort of like playing Frankenstein in the lab, Let's take these naturally occurring pathogens. Now, the line that they came out with was this, Scott. This is again, it's humanitarian research. We want in case there are new emerging global threats or global diseases, we want to find a cure. We want to find the vaccine. So with that, uh, they began this experimentation. Now, there was a time that the gain-of-function research was temporarily paused. They pressed the pause button because there was an incident in a lab uh, where research, function research was being done, uh, they basically got a slap on the wrist. Uh, Health and Human Services said, okay guys, we're going to shut down funding, we're gonna suspend funding for gain-of-function research until uh, you can prove that you can do so uh, with higher safety standards. Well, you can imagine at the time uh, you had, um, they said, yes, we'll, we'll play by the rules. We'll enhance the safety measures in these labs. This won't happen again. So a subcommittee hearing was given, was led by Dr. Anthony Fauci, Dr. Francis Collins went in and their report was actually had nothing, nothing that referred to gain-of-function research. Rather, they talked about the ethics of biomedical research and its benefits, its medical benefits. It flew under the radar, Scott, and the, uh, the pause was lifted off of gain-of-function research once again. Uh, there are pictures I have in my book where Barack Obama uh, is there with Dr. Fauci. They're viewing, they're, matter of fact, taking a tour of some of the labs, and suddenly funding resumes once again. Our taxpayers' dollars mm. paying for this 
deadly research. Well, we're gonna come back and talk more about this. So thank you for joining us. Mark Fulmer on Shabbat Night Live. You made it possible. Thank you for your donations. You make this happen so that others can see this into the future. This is a future thing. Folks in the future need to know what is happening here so we don't fall prey to this again and we know what's happening. So your donations make it happen. Thank you for doing it. We'll be right back. Thank you for your support of Shabbat Night Live. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? The CCP, China, the deep state, gain of function, it's all kind of, yeah, that's kind of what I thought, isn't it? But is there a smoking gun? Is there something that ties us all together? Or all, are all these just assumptions that we are trying to put together, but there's no real glue? So Mark, maybe you can help us out with this. Is there any way to connect all this? Is there any reality to all this? Or is it just our assumptions? Yeah, at this point, you know, we have to say about there, there are some smoking gun uh, conclusions we can draw, although we don't have somebody that was inside the Wuhan lab. I'll talk a little bit about whistleblowers that are coming out here even recently. But perhaps the most significant, I just want to mention, Scott, about these brave research scientists, men and women, that step forward with the truth they literally have risked their careers and their reputation online. What I mean by that. Uh, back in the day when I, I was a young epidemiologist, disease outbreak epidemiology, I, I worked with research physicians. Uh, and they typically, their bread and butter is gained by um, research, the published research funding. And uh, so when they publish their journals, uh, they, they receive funding to carry on for their research projects. Well, guess what? In, during the pandemic, if you were, whether you were a physician, whether you were a scientific research, researcher at the time, and you were coming forward, you were questioning the status quo, you were questioning what was being uh, put forth by mainline media, you were labeled immediately as a conspiracist. And you were also, your research was in jeopardy, funding was cut, and not only that, but the mainstream media, the left, went after aggressively, after physicians, after research scientists. We see this with individuals such as Dr. Peter McCullough. I was just gonna bring just, him up, yeah. Just recently had a lawsuit uh, dismissed, it was against him. And, uh, but many of these, these very brave men and women, they came out as whistleblowers on the front line. And I am so thankful for their work. They have encouraged me and inspired me also because I've used their research in writing this book. And one of them I want to mention is Dr. Stephen Quay, uh, incredible research scientist. His field was actually uh, in uh, cancer research, but uh, Dr. Quay is a subject matter expert in uh, genetics as well. So. 
Uh, when all of this started coming out about the COVID and its origins, uh, that piqued uh, Dr. Quay's curiosity. So his background also, he's involved with uh, working with supercomputers, doing epidemiologic data. We, we call that field public health informatics. It's a very sophisticated um, uh, disciplines where you take data analysis on computers. I had people uh, right before I, I retired from my area of work that were actually in informatics. They were computer people and they were the computer geeks that were uh, way over my head. When they'd come into my office, I had to get them to dumb stuff down. Dr. Quay was one of those individuals who would uh, combine his subject matter expertise and genetics and research. So he took the, he was able to get access to the initial viral templates of the COVID SARS, the virus. And uh, looking at the initial uh, viral templates, he took the, actually an analysis on doing genetic templates, genetic sequences, which are incredible detailed, and took the data and used a computer algorithms to study what was in the genetic sequence. These are codes. When you're a geneticist, you're dealing in language of code. It's very complex. So thousands upon thousands of calculations uh, Dr. Quay did on looking at the initial viral templates of the uh, COVID-19. And from that, he came up with some amazing, amazing uh, insight. And there were three in particular. Uh, first of all, he came up with what he noticed were two cross-contaminants. Now, explain this, I'll explain this a little bit. When you're doing, working in a lab, a level three or level four lab, uh, you have to be extremely cautious of not merging uh, any cross-contaminants because what that does, that violates the efficacy of your study. However, you begin seeing, Dr. Quay began seeing a pattern that these cross-contaminants were not accidental. They occurred over and over again, which he said they were intentional. So in, this is like in, the, in the, the plant world, I'd mentioned previously how I'd worked in uh, yeah. genetically modified seeds. This isn't just cross-contamination by wind carrying uh, pollen from one field to another. This is, this is deliberate hybridization. Exactly. So, and so he looked at this even further, and he found that first of all, the most interesting surprise was that there were samples, cross-contamination samples, of an experimental vaccine that was being developed in the Wuhan lab. Now, okay, we jumped from a bioterrorism weapon. Okay, uh, uh, there that. This, this virus was created in a lab. Now, Dr. Quay's research brings up that finds they have been experimenting with vaccines as well. Now, the yeah. timeline, when is that? That's yeah, this is, act, this is actually, this is taking place 2019, 2018, huh. very early on. This is before the COVID pandemic. And uh, you see, Dr. Quay, when he started this research, he wanted to look at 
the links between, okay, what, what are the origins of this? And really when he started the research, which I quote, I quote him extensively in my research as Scott, uh, he said, you know, the very first on the top of his purpose for this is not to demonstrate that it's a bioweapon, but to see what are the origins. So he backtracks this and finds out, wait a minute, what are this, why is the, the viral templates, why are they tainted with an experimental vaccine? And we're gonna talk in other segments uh, later on. We'll talk about the link between big pharma and, and, and uh, vaccines and all that is going on. But um, there, when you begin backtracking and connecting these dots, it's incredible. So Dr. Quay found, first of all, they had been working to develop vaccines very early uh, before the pandemic. So interestingly, we began asking mm -hmm. questions, okay, why? What are the purposes behind this? So create the problem and then create the solution. Exactly, that is where we look at this and people say, well, no, they, the lab was just doing uh, humanitarian, viral research and they wanted, just like the gain of function people have been telling us all along, uh, we want to be able to uh, develop a cure ahead of the problem. Well, I'm sorry to say, you know, we're not buying that any longer because now things that are coming out since then, uh, th this is becoming uh, much bigger, uh, connecting all of that. But the second thing I, I found the most interesting, Scott, is, a, is in addition to the vaccine cross-contaminants, uh, there's also this, um, uh, he found the presence of a very deadly virus. It's called Nipah, Nipah virus, N-I-P-A-H. Nipah is a bioengineered category C agent that can be weaponized, that can be 20 to 50 times even more lethal than COVID. And again, you got remember, Dr. Quay said, these are intentional tamperings in the gain of function research on these alpha beta coronaviruses from bats. And so which leads us this, again, who is behind the Wuhan lab? Well, we have the People's Liberation Army, the Communist Chinese Party. We have the bioweapons, uh, the, the General Shen Wei, who is actually a subject matter expert for biological weapons. So that brings us back full circle to say, wait a minute, you're actually taking, I mean, the, the idea of enhancing this with an even deadlier virus, I, it was there. It was all in these works that were revealed by Dr. Quay. He used what was called an algorithm, Bayesian analysis, very sophisticated computer modeling, and had uncovered this data. Hmm. So create the problem, create the solution. You know, before the cameras came on, I, I was saying to you that, you know, this whole uh, Operation Warp Speed, as the previous administration yeah. had called it, you know, you, you saw this, and if you just saw it on the surface and you're layman, you know, you okay, great, well, they created this vaccine very quickly. But you, from a bioterrorism, uh, you know, analysis, and you look at this, could it have been created that fast, or did they have to start working back in 2019 to make this even appear uh, on the stage at the right time? You know, that's an awesome question, Scott. My belief is, yeah, these things were in the process 
way before. And I'm going to later address about segments of what I call this pandemic equation that comes into it. It was even many years before that. And uh, with, with the vaccine development, uh, you begin putting all these, these pieces together that, yeah, um, create a problem. Hey, we're going to come up with a solution for it. And uh, one, one of the things that we uh, begin looking at, on, we, we all know that this vaccine, what was fast-tracked through the emergency use authorization. I can tell you, Scott, I was on a conference call with some fellow epidemiologists. We were sitting in the room and some of my staff. And in the conference call, we had a CDC liaison. It was actually reporting to Dr. Fauci. And we had also the State Commissioner of Health in the state of Texas, uh, worked with the Health and Human Services Commission. And months before a vaccine was ever rolled out, they were talking about the logistics for vaccine deployment, Scott. There was actually already planning even before that. And I remember on the phone, one of my young epidemiologists uh, on staff that was in the room uh, had asked the question that says, now wait a minute, you're going to roll out a vaccine this quickly. We know that traditional public health vaccines, okay, have been vetted through testing, clinical testing for 10, 12, 15 years or more. And then from an epidemiology standpoint, we gathered the data on it to look at adverse reactions. And they said, how in the world are we going to, and this was an epidemiologist also talking, asking the question to the CDC representative on the phone. I'll never forget the words of the CDC official said, guess what, gentlemen, you're going to be the guinea pigs for this. And I, I, I remember just being just an astonishment, Scott. I said, they want to play with the lives of people like this? I mean, it, it's like an experimental vaccine that we know little about. And uh, so very early on, they were discussing the logistics, they were discussing the deployment, the emergency youth authorization in order to pass this thing through without vetting its safety. And now, Think about it, the whole mess that we have to deal with now with all of these vaccine injuries, these deaths that are coming out, gets back to their purposes in developing. I, I believe Dr. Quay, he uncovered something that was so uh, valuable and so important for us to know that they were planning. They were actually in the planning stages, like you said, create a problem, We'll create a cure for it, and here's the cure we have for it. Mm. And that, that has even bigger implications for something we had already talked about with the one world government. So this emergency use authorization just bypasses all the safety checks. Yes. So, okay, so that's, did it work? Yep, worked with COVID. So now, emergency youth, uh, use authorization, here's another pandemic. Pandemic, well, <laughs> yeah. Freudian slip. Uh, <laughs> so the U.S. government's going to say, oh, well, our, there's nothing we can do, guys. The, the, the World Health Organization will handle it from here. And then poof, because of emergency use authorization, all of our rights and freedoms are gone. Exactly. That's probably one of the most dangerous threats, Scott, to our constitutional liberties, to our personal American freedom. And here's how they're very subtle in getting through the back door. Oh yeah, we'll just roll out. 
And one of the things I can tell you about very early on, I mentioned to you about the, the planning for the vaccine logistics. Uh, FEMA, our Federal Emergency Management Agency, suddenly was put into the driver's seat for vaccine rollout and vaccine logistics. Now, uh, in, in areas I worked with, I worked for years, so I worked for local emergency management in the state of Texas, and we were in what they call region, uh, FEMA region six, which is over several states, and I, I work with, but in natural disasters, okay, uh, hurricanes and uh, flooding, uh, tornadoes, work with FEMA on a lot of planning rules, a lot of emergency response rules I sit down at the table with. Now, a federal agency was going to be through emergency use authorization, was going to be put into the driver's seat for vaccine logistics and deployment. Okay, how does that? Back to the World Health Organization. So what you do in order to uh, basically uh, go around the Constitution, you come up with these laws, such as an emergency use authorization, which gave FEMA precedence. I remember the day, Scott, shortly before I, I retired. I retired early with the work I was doing. But I remember FEMA, busloads of FEMA personnel coming into the state of Texas to begin getting ready for mass vaccine operations. They came to my planning unit, okay? I handled planning for uh, bioterrorism emergency preparedness. They began approaching me from the federal level on down to local level asking us, says, we want you uh, to begin doing planning for they call, they used to term mass prophylaxis, which means mass vaccination. Now, I worked in my particular area of work, I did what was called strategic national stockpile planning, which for years it was uh, preparing the public for a terrorist attack. Let's say if you have something like the release of anthrax through Bacillus anthracis, uh, where you know the white powder goes out, it's aerosolized. Uh, we actually had protocols and planning in place to work with local emergency management, local medical um, providers in order to protect the people, to get antidotes out, to do, we call them medical countermeasures. And that was standard in our planning. Now, these entities from the federal government on down were coming to us saying, we want you to take your planning, your strategic national stockpile planning, we want you to customize it in order to support mass vaccine operations. I said, really? I said, wait a minute, we do planning for bioterrorism threats. Well, the line that they had given me was, well, this happens to be an emerging health threat, public health threat, so we're now asking for bioterrorism preparedness to assist us with this process. By then, I began connecting the dots, got me realizing, wait a minute, um, they had been planning for this for a long time. They wanted us to take mass uh, areas like stadiums and ballparks and uh, places, uh, amusement parks, and began doing the planning for 
the COVID vaccine rollout. And FEMA personnel were actually coming in by the busloads, training, they were involved with exercises, they were involved with uh, logistics operations for the rollout of this vaccine. All, why? Because emergency use authorizations. The way to get around our rights, our liberties here in this constitutional republic, you've tried to find these loopholes and that happened to be one of them, Scott. Wow, we're gonna continue this next week. This is, there's a lot more to tell here. So thank you, Mark, for joining us. It's all about the Wuhan incident by Mark Fulmer. We're talking all about this book and the details you're not gonna hear anywhere else. This is why you're not hearing this on YouTube. You get to hear it here, you're gonna hear the whole truth and you're gonna be shocked at what you hear next. So tune in next week to Shabbat Night Live and we will see you here for a special edition of this special series we have with Mark Fulmer. We'll see you then. Until then, Shabbat Shalom.